market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matcher. I'm the deputy political editor at the paper. And here with me, as always, is the political editor of the paper, Alistair Grant. Alistair, how are you? Not too bad. It's been a busy week for you because I've been off most of it. I think every week in politics is quite busy these days. But yeah, it's been, uh, it has been quite busy. It's a bit frustrating, actually. You know, Just give us one week off and that would be preferable. We'll cover off Ian Blackford's departure and uh, Stephen Flynn's victory later on the podcast. But we'll start with kind of the bigger, longer term news of the week, which was the final publication of Gordon Brown's tome on the uh, constitutional future of the UK. This is something we've been waiting for, for what feels like decades. Yeah, so Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister, was tasked by Labour to come up with this kind of constitution report, this report on how to reform the UK, how to kind of reform the constitution, how to revamp the UK. Like you say, it's been long awaited. We've been waiting for this report for quite a long time now. And on Monday, it was finally launched. So there's a launch in Leeds, I think, and then one in Edinburgh, which I went to. And the report is kind of kind of what you'd expect from Gordon Brown in some ways. It's quite weighty. I think it's, you know, 100, I think I'm, 150 it's pages yeah, long sure. or something like that. There's 40 recommendations. Uh, among them, the most eye-catching is the plans to scrap the House of Lords and replace it with kind of assembly of the nations and regions. There's plans to transfer tens of thousands of jobs out of Whitehall, from Whitehall to kind of outside London. There's plans to ban MPs second jobs, uh, set up a new anti-corruption commissioner. It's this kind of attempt to kind of clean up politics and get rid of some of the maybe kind of borderline corruption that maybe mm-hmm. people kind of are beginning to associate with aspects of politics. Elsewhere, there's plans involving Scotland to kind of entrench devolution, uh, kind of include the Scottish Parliament in international agreements involving Scottish areas. There's all sorts of different plans. And basically the theme is to try and, as I say, revamp the constitution, bring it into the 21st century in some ways in Scotland to try and appeal to that kind of middle Scotland, maybe soft yes voters and say to them, look, we are actually trying to affect major change here. This is what we want to do. It almost kind of brings to mind those, that talk of Devo Max that we yeah. saw around the 2014 referendum. But at the same time, also to appeal to voters across the UK. It's not just about Scotland, this report. Yeah. It's much wider than that. So they're also trying to appeal to voters in England and saying things like, you know, more powers for directly elected mayors, for example, and also potentially introducing elected mayors in Scotland as well. It feels, I don't know, maybe this is unfair on, on the piece but or on the, on the paper, but it feels more directed towards the north of England and those kind of, you know, what, what might be termed as like forgotten parts of the UK over the last... 20 years, arguably something that the last Labour government under of which Gordon Brown was a part of kind of accelerated that kind of, you know, detachment from the north of England in particular as it, you know, de-industrialised very quickly. And this is kind of a, as much as it, there's a lot of description of love bombing Scotland, there's an awful lot of love bombing of the old red wall. 
There is. I mean, it's, it's kind of an attempt to decentralise politics, to bring politics out of London and towards these communities. And you're right, there is a focus on uh, areas, particularly in the north of England. I think that launch in Leeds kind of says it all, to yeah. be honest, about who they're trying to target here. Uh, I mean, Labour's problem is that, as I say, they're not, this report is not just trying to appeal to Scotland, it's trying to appeal across the UK. Mm -hmm. And the problem that we've all, always had in this kind of debate in Scotland is that when you talk about Devo Max or, you know, quote unquote federalism, uh, it's difficult to come up with a federal system in the current UK because England is so much bigger yeah. than Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. So it involves reforming England and that's never been particularly popular. Mm -hmm. It's never been really put forward by a political party in any meaningful sense. So this is an, an attempt to do that. As I say, it was very Gordon Brown. It was very uh, kind of weighty. You could tell he had thought about these issues quite seriously. I think he remains, uh, obviously, at this event on Monday in the grass market in Edinburgh. And he remains quite an, an impressive political operator, I think. He was, yeah. you know, got up on the stage, was speaking, you know, without notes, mm. very impressively, as he, as he always does at these events. He is someone to listen to, yeah. but I think... Probably the difficulty they'll have is that a lot of people uh, are so entrenched in this political debate in Scotland now and maybe associate Gordon Brown with the vow yeah. he made it in the run to the 2014 referendum and the idea of more powers for Scotland. And maybe Labour will find it hard to reach those voters, I think. It's also as well, it's very much a, it's a very policy heavy document in the sense that it's very detailed. <laughs> like there's not There's a lot of stuff in there that might just go over the head of the average voter. We're come, coming back to one thing you mentioned that I think is probably the most headline-grabbing aspect of it, but probably also the one that has the most impact in Scotland, which is the reform to the House of Lords, which is suggested to be, as you said, this nation, or the Senate of the nation and regions, which has a, I think what was termed as a, you know, a constitutional watching, or I can't remember what the phrase is. It's basically meant to protect the constitution in the general terms, from the the House of Commons, basically, you know, if they were trying to do something massively constitutional, which they've done at length over the last few years, or, you know, impinge on the Sewell Convention, which is the idea that you, you shouldn't be passing stuff normally that's on devolved matters, which the current government has, you know, trodden on at length for the last five years. It's quite a, it's a very different version of what a lot of people, I think, thought of what might replace the House of Lords in the long run. But at the same time, we have heard a lot of this before. This has been promised in most Labour manifestos, not this specific reform, but reform of the House of Lords for, for decades. Yeah, I mean, reforming or well, scrapping the House of Lords in general has been a Labour policy or at least a Labour intention for a yeah. long time. I think it stretches back decades. It's like reforming well. council tax and the SNP, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a historic Labour desire to do something about the House of Lords. And the problem has always been that it's a mammoth task mm -hmm. To be honest, I mean, the House of Lords has a history stretching back, I think, probably a millennium in different shapes and forms. Yeah. And if you are going to scrap it, you've got to, or at least the intention is that you, a lot of people would say you, you need to replace it with something. It needs to, you can't just get rid of it and then leave it at that. Yeah, sure. There's this desire to have this house that kind of scrutinises what the Commons is doing in some shape or form. So this is kind of an attempt to actually lay out those plans and to say exactly what that would look like, or at least start the conversation around that. And I think... The thing to say about Gordon Brown's report is that although it was very much endorsed by Keir Starmer, he was at the launch event, so was Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar, they are now going to consult on it and have a kind of consultation process with a view to then, well, Keir Starmer says, adopting most of it in the next mm. Labour manifesto to implement that in the first term of a Labour government. But it does feel like through that consultation process, you don't really know what some of these plans will look like at the end of that. Uh, 
And obviously, if the intention is to scrap the House of Lords in the first term of a Labour government, it's very easy to say that, much harder to do. And there's a lot of speculation run up to Gordon Brown's report that there was friction between him and Keir Starmer about how possible that was. Gordon Brown quite keen to push forward that message. Keir Starmer may be a bit less keen on that particular thing. Uh, he's denying that. So... Yeah, it's a huge task. I mean, who knows if... There was, a, there was a very interesting line in... So I attended a briefing the day before the the report was announced, which, you know, we led the paper on on the Monday morning, but, you know, with the headline details. And there was an interesting line in the briefing that you got from from uh, Gordon Brown's team, which was that the House of Lords would be replaced with this, you know, Senate, um, but it will be done while recognising the valuable work of the existing Labour peers. Now, I, maybe this is being cynical, but that screams to me like that's an admission that actually there's a lot of people within the Labour Party who are peers, who are lords and ladies, etc., who are balking at the idea. I, I don't think, I think some of them will not have been happy at these plans. Especially um, those who've, who've been in there for a while or, you know, yeah. developed good relationships. And, you know, it, to be fair to the lords in recent years, despite you know, the fact that it is quite anachronistic. It's been one of the breaks on the Conservative government. You know, it sent a lot of legislation back to be looked at two or three times. It's been it's been a problem for the government rather than a rubber stamping exercise. Yeah, but I think it's been a problem for the government in other ways as well because it's so associated with kind of cronyism and, you know, corruption to various degrees. Such but, as Michelle Moan, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Michelle Moan is a, yeah, a good example of this, just constantly these constant scandals hitting the headlines to do with the House of Lords, to do with the process of electing people to the House of Lords. And I think it, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone in politics who genuinely did not believe that it needs reform mm. in some way, shape or form. So I, I wrote in the paper on Monday that the plan assumes, makes the same mistake as the devolution settlement did in, in the late 90s, which is it assumes that devolution doesn't mean difference. And that in reality, this plan only really works if you kind of assume that Labour are in power across the country. I think that's particularly true of the, the Senate of Nation and Regions because presumably Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland will be treated as equal to the each region of England. You know, the north of England is as big population-wise as Scotland. You know, none of the, I don't think that was set out, certainly wasn't set out when, when I wrote the piece of how that would actually work. Do we think that this is going to, really genuinely improve how people view the union? It is Labour's bid to save the union at the end of the day? I think if genuine reform happened, and that happened in the way that's been presented in this paper, then it would make a difference. It got criticised in social media among, to be fair, among pro-independent supporters who probably yeah. aren't going to like it anyway, yeah. for being kind of weak, for not going far enough, for being a bit kind of vague. And I think it's true that there are things in it that aren't pinned down or set out in kind of concrete terms. But if you take it at face value, it would mean a huge change for the UK. It'd be massive, massive change. So it would make a difference, I think. Do we think Keir Starmer's sold on it? Uh, I think he is sold on a lot of it. I mean, I don't have any insider no. knowledge about this. I think he's certainly keen for a lot of it. I think he's probably more keen on the kind of decentralising aspect of it and bringing power back to communities. I think he probably does completely believe in that. I'm not sure how sold he is in the, the House of Lords reform happening within the first term of a Labour government. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with something like that is that potentially you get caught up in all sorts of political debates around that and it kind of, there's a logjam of stuff yeah. that would need to happen. And if you're talking about the first term of a Labour government, presumably the cost of living crisis is still going to be a huge issue for them. 
And I think it becomes hard to see how you'd manage all these different things at once while dealing with the bread and butter of politics. Having said that, and it's not an original point, I've heard other journalists make it, but the good thing about constitutional reform is it is in theory cheap. You can yes. push it through without spending lots of money. Yeah, I think it strikes me as something, and I don't think this is a, I don't mean this in disrespect to the plan or to Gordon Brown, but it feels very much like something that you plonk on the table a few years out from a general election as we are pledging effectively to level up the UK and here are our plans to do it. But we're not going to accept them straight away. So, you know, Starmer, as you said, was consulting on them. You know, there's an argument to which, you know, the plans are there, but are Labour really behind it? And also, is it just going to be one of those things that once they're in government and once they're actually doing government things where they don't have the time to think about the specifics, you know, they've got pressing issues around the economy, the likelihood is that the, you know, a UK Labour Party is going to come into power with a serious economic, you know, strain. All you hear from Keir Starmer at the minute is very much, you know, we're offering change, but we're offering very minor change. You know, immigration-wise, we're basically the same as the Conservative Party, apart from the Rwanda plan. Relationship with Europe, we are the party of making Brexit work, not coming close to the EU. And I just wonder whether or not this is the sort of thing that, yes, it's there, yes, it can be pointed at during a general election, but actually in the, you know, day-to-day workings of government, it sits on a shelf as this will do it eventually sort of plan. Yeah, I mean, well, God knows in politics there are lots of reports that get produced and exactly. nothing ever really happens about yeah. them and they do kind of sit in shelves and gather dust. I think probably Labour supporters, Labour politicians would point to, you know, 1997, the mm. general election then when the party did come into power and it did affect huge change. I mean, we are sitting in a lovely committee room in the <laughs> Scottish <laughs> Parliament right now, which only exists in the aftermath of that election. So it's, not, it's arguably easier to set up a Scottish Parliament than it is to radically shake up English, you know, devolution, yeah. which is incredibly complex, you know, as as it as it is. The the idea of just turning the Scottish office into a Scottish government and building a building, actually probably is e- an easier thing to to do. It might cost you money, but, but it's easier but to do. Did, but they did affect huge change, yeah, and maybe people might have expected them to push that into the long grass in some ways. I mean, there were obviously critics within the Rome Party when it came to mm. devolution. But yeah, I mean, you're right. The problem with these reports and kind of papers is that, yeah, politics is full of them. We, we kind of, we're, we're very used to being handed out kind of weighty documents that nothing ever really comes from. But. <laughs> Not talking about the white paper here. That's <laughs> well, there's many white papers. There's a good example, the right? The Building a New Scotland paper. Yes, yeah. sorry, the Building a New Scotland paper. You're right. It's before my time. <laughs> um, let's, let's just move on from Gordon Brown and the Labour Party, just talk briefly about Stephen Flynn and the SNP in Westminster and get us up to speed for those who might not have been paying much attention this week. Um, So obviously there were reports, I think we actually talked about this in a podcast last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, that Stephen Flynn, the SNP MP for Aberdeen South, was on manoeuvres and kind of fancied his chances to become SNP Westminster leader. At the time, Stephen Flynn denied this when it emerged in a newspaper Fast forward to now, Ian Blackford stood down ahead of the SNP's kind of AGM for the Westminster group, effectively because it seemed like he was fed up a little bit, but also kind of saw that there would be a leadership challenge against him. And I think he said actually previously that he thinks he would have had a chance of winning it, but he certainly saw there was going to be this challenge, the potential for division. He could have lost it. So he stood down ahead of that AGM. 
and we now have Stephen Flynn as a new SNP Westminster leader, worth pointing out that many people thought it was going to be a coronation, including me, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, me too. Uh, and that there wouldn't be any other contenders for, for the Westminster leader job. But in the days running up to Alison Foulis, who's kind of seen as a, an ally of Nicola Sturgeon, an ally of the leadership in, in Edinburgh, put her name forward. And I think, again, a lot of people thought that she had a really good chance of winning that. But it turned out that Stephen Flynn actually won it quite decisively. And people are interpreting this as a bit of a blow to Nicola Sturgeon. Um, Stephen Flynn is seen as, uh, probably calling him an internal critic of Sturgeon is a bit too strong, but he's kind of seen as someone who isn't maybe as aligned with the leadership in Edinburgh as Alison Foulis was. Yeah. Alison Foulis was definitely seen as the, the kind of Sturgeon candidate. And Stephen Flynn, I think particularly on issues maybe like oil and gas, he maybe doesn't see completely eye to eye with Nicola Sturgeon on that. Mary Black is his deputy. Again, a figure who's quite outspoken, not popular with all wings of the, mm. the SNP. So it'll be interesting to see what happens from here. I mean, how do you think it will affect the party in Westminster? It's really hard to say. I mean, as we've been you know, talking and working today, you know, there's been bits of reshuffles going on. And you look at what his first moves have been. So immediately he sacked the chief whip in Westminster, who was Owen Thompson, he replaced him with Martin Doherty Hughes. He's, he's West, represents Western Bartonshire. And then you also had a couple of letters out as well today. Um, I, last I checked, it was two. You know, one from Pete Wishart, who has been, I think he is the most, the, the veteran SNP MP yeah. nowadays. He's yeah. been there for an awful long time, I think, I think since 2001, who resigned as DEFRA spokesperson. Now, this is one of the issues with having, being the third party in Westminster, you have to be have a spokesperson for pretty much everything. So you end up with most of your party on the quote-unquote front bench. But Wishart, you know, put out this letter. For the last few days, we've had this weird kind of phony, you know, happiness that, you know, Ian's done a fantastic job. We've had the ridiculous scenes of SNP politicians trying to pretend that there aren't any divisions in the Westminster group when everyone knows that there are divisions. (laughs) And then Pete Wishart today, you know, first day of, really first day of, full day of Stephen Flynn's job, you know, going, you know, I am bemused, I think the phrase was, you know, that, that you felt the need for a change of leadership and that you didn't talk to me when you were canvassing for support, something that Flynn rejects the suggestion he was doing, which he obviously was doing, otherwise you won't, you don't get 26 votes at the end of it. And you had Stuart MacDonald, very highly thought of, you know, amongst a lot of Westminster MPs, who was defence spokesperson, someone who'd really very much modernised the SNP's kind of approach to nuclear weapons and just defence and foreign policy in general, also resigning his post today. So it kind of, you kind of wonder where... Stephen Flynn is going to get his front bench from the, the discussions about short, you know, narrowing the numbers that are reducing the number of folk on it. Um, but if you've got like allies of Ian Blackford, such as Wisher and McDonald, you know, stepping down, we don't know what else, who else might step down or wants to step down. You know, at what point do you rely on someone like Patricia Gibson, who has had a very difficult time, you know, accused of sexual harassment um, and let off on a technicality, really, you know, admitted she was drunk, uh, etc. You know, is it really a good position for Stephen Flynn to be in, to be promoting someone who has that hanging over their heads to the front bench? I think that's the interesting thing to see who ends up being in Flynn's team, whether or not they are some of the stronger critics. There's, people, there's backbenchers like Angus, Brendan McNeil, who, I don't know, presumably doesn't particularly like Ian Blackford because he doesn't particularly like Nicholas Sturgeon. He might end up as a on the front bench. It's 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 firmly up in the air 
it could weaken the strength of the SNP in Westminster if you have people in there who are maybe not up to scratch, maybe not up to speed, and who don't have a kind of united voice on on various things. I think the big risk really is that the the group down south detach themselves further from the SNP, you know, view from Edinburgh, and you end up in a position, particularly ahead of a de facto referendum at general election, where you've got 40-odd MPs desperately concerned for their jobs, going on about other stuff other than independence, when the whole party is supposedly fighting for that in a supposed referendum. Yeah, I mean, divisions certainly do not help political no. parties. It's unusual for divisions to erupt into the, into the open when it comes to the SNP. We're very used to them being very disciplined. Mm. Uh, and I think to go back to a comment you made earlier, certainly when I was speaking to people for a piece I wrote about the kind of leadership election a few days ago, someone was making the point that at the moment, you're right, they do have, the SNP does have kind of shadow spokespeople for all sorts of different topics. Yeah. And a lot of them, this person's view was, are probably unnecessary. You mm -hmm. don't need to shadow everything. You don't need to have a spokesperson on every single topic that you know the government has. You can just have this kind of smaller team, more focused on like particular issues, have someone who can speak about the economy, someone who can speak about defence, these kind of key issues. Uh, and maybe that'll make them a bit more nimble and focused. But having said that, you know, one of the things that Stephen Flynn will certainly be wanting to do was to is to kind of dampen down this impression of divisions. He doesn't want to be leading a divided Westminster group. No. A, because of the kind of political aesthetics of that, it kind of opens you up to all sorts of easy attacks from your political opponents. But B, because he quite simply doesn't want to have people briefing against him in the party. I mean, it's one of the problems that Ian Blackford was having towards the end was, you know, if not open warfare, there was certainly you know, very obvious unhappiness within the party. There was kind of briefings to newspapers, people making it clear that they didn't, they thought his kind of leadership, the, the time had passed on it. And Stephen Flynn will want to kind of revamp the party, but also kind of bring it together, I think. There's an argument as well, isn't there, that, you know, the divisions within the SNP Westminster group are because of Ian Blackford and his leadership and his the, the issues he's had over the last year in particular with the Patrick Grady scandal, with, you know, sacking Joanna Cherry for what a lot of the group or some of the group felt was not not the right reasons. And now he's gone, you know, every single letter that's gone out from from MPs today resigning from their front bench post is, you have my full and un unequivocal support. Obviously, that's a classic politician line to put in any letter. But it could be that all of these issues go away now that they've changed, changed leader. Yeah, I think Ian Blackford did make or was perceived by many to have made mistakes I think the Joanna Cherry thing, people could understand maybe, I mean, she was sacked for essentially disloyalty. Yeah. But the way he handled it maybe wasn't great. And one of the points that someone made to me about this is that one of the ways you can deal with internal critics is to kind of bring them into the fold. Mm. So Alex Salmon did that with Alex Neil, the yeah. former health secretary. Alex Salmon and Alex Neil never saw eye to eye, eye to eye, but Alex Salmon made him his health secretary. Yeah. And we brought him into the fold. And if you push people away further, you're going to leave them kind of you know, lobbing criticism at you from a distance, really. They're going, to, they're going to become more unhappy. But putting that aside, I think there are a lot of people who think that Ian Blackford did a really good job. He is popular within the party. He's seen as a, a figure that opposition politicians can work with. He understands the game of politics. He's actually popular with SNP staffers as well, actually, which can't always be said of senior figures in political parties. And it's sometimes quite telling about their character as well, I think. So I think one of the problems they'll have is that they've got rid of this very senior figure 
someone who knows how to play, as I say, the game of politics. Stephen Flynn is a, a little bit of a newbie in some ways. I know he was a, a councillor, a senior councillor in Aberdeen before this. He's, he obviously knows politics, but he's only been an MP since 2019. He is quite fresh-faced, and now he's really in the political spotlight, standing up at PMQs every week, representing the SNP, the third party of Westminster. Uh, if you're talking about Nicola Sturgeon's plans for a de facto, using the next general election as a de facto referendum, that Westminster group will be key to those plans. They'll be really on the, the political front line. So his leadership will come under a lot of scrutiny. Mm. One of the problems they could have is that he is a bit of a novice. Be interesting to see what happens. That's all we've got time for, though, this week. Next week, I hope we can get an episode out. We will be pouring over the details of the Scottish budget this time next week. So hopefully we can keep you up to date with that, which is a big day in Scottish politics and the calendar before Christmas. But thank you, Alistair. And thank you very much, Ian, for listening. Bye-bye.